Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we will be starting off in verse 1 this week. Once you have found that place in your Bible, if you could stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. You are uh, joining us this week. Uh, We are in the middle of a study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Many of you uh, already know where to turn before I even say it, uh, because what our habit is here is to go verse by verse through sections of Scripture. And last week we finished Luke chapter 4, verse 44. And so naturally this week we start in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. And we're just seeking to understand the gospel of Luke as Luke is revealing his account to us. The whole purpose of going through sections of Scripture in order is to never lose the context of what we are understanding. So we're not trying to pull verses out of context and make application outside of the context with which Luke is making application. So as we have been uncovering the Gospel of Luke thus far, we've so far been introduced to Jesus, and we've been introduced to him by means of prophecy, by means of John the Baptist, by means of his own testimony and revelation through the preaching and teaching in synagogues. And then last week, we've been revealed, we've uh, understood who Jesus is by means of the miraculous, his revelation by doing signs and healings. And so these revelations are introducing this Jesus to us as a character who is perplexing to many of the people who he has encountered so far. Simon Peter does not yet know what to do with Jesus. Uh, The demons know what to do with Jesus, and they don't like him very much. Some of the people in the synagogues have made up their mind about Jesus. But the reader of Luke's gospel, Theophilus, is going to have a whole body of evidence levied towards him, and he's going to have to make his own conclusion about who Jesus is. Remember, Luke writes his gospel to Theophilus to confirm and to have certainty about the things which he had been taught. And so as readers, we are really moving through this text in such a way where Luke never comes out explicitly and says, this is Jesus, not really in the same way that John does. You know, John in his gospel says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and we beheld his glory. And then the first person he introduced us to is that word. And so John makes explicit claims about who Jesus is and then backfills those claims. Luke takes a different approach. He tells us that there is this character named Jesus, that there are angels who prophesy about him. 
And so far as readers, we are really getting a sense of who this character is through the evidence that he mounts. And that really lands us into today's text where we see Jesus now making explicit miracles to individual people. So, so far his healing works have been in the presence of large bodies of people. He's done some private healings, which we saw last week. But in this case, he does not only do a large scale miracle, but he does it with an individual in mind. He does it with actually three individuals in mind and with the intent of targeting them for his call. The call of, or the title of the sermon tonight is The Call to Follow. The Call to Follow. And what you're going to see in this text is three ways in which God reveals himself, three ways in which he calls these people to follow him. The first way uh, you will see with me in the first three verses is he calls through his word, through the word. The second way they are called to follow is through the sign. And that will be uh, really in verses four through verse seven. And then the closing sections of the text tonight, verses eight through 11, will show us the holy God who reveals himself to these people. And so you see the revelation of the word, the revelation of the sign, and then ultimately the revelation of God himself, which points these men, these three men, to a call into fellowship with God. And so we're going to start tonight in verse 1, and we are going to pick up right there. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is something you are familiar with. It's the Sea of Galilee. It just goes by another name. There are actually several ways in which it's referenced in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it has a different kind of reference point, but it's the same lake that they're talking about. So they're standing by the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And on one occasion, which implies to us as readers that there are several occasions on which this kind of thing happened, there's a crowd pressing in on Jesus. You see this in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount where the crowd is pressing in and curiously trying to see who Jesus is. There's one time where the crowd is so busy that they have to drop someone in through the roof to get access to Jesus. There's one time where the crowd is pressing out on Jesus so much that they're bumping all over and then a woman who has a bleeding problem has to go and touch Jesus, right? We, we see several accounts in scripture where people are pressing in curiously to see who Jesus is. But on this occasion, they're not pressing in on him to see any miracles as they were in the previous sections. They don't want to see any exorcisms. They're pressing in on him to hear the word of God. That's what Luke identifies to us. And we can take him at his word because he is an accurate storyteller thus far. And he's giving us an accurate account of how things were. And Luke tells us that the crowd presses in on him to hear the word of God. Now, it's one thing to say that this refers to all of the things that Jesus says because Jesus, you know, is God. Jesus actually is the word of God. And so they're pressing in to hear the words of Jesus. But I think we can take this statement in a more general sense. To see, the word of God in Luke's gospel refers many times to what Jesus teaches. But it also, in the book of Acts, refers to the sermons that the apostles preach. The word of God in Luke's account through his gospel of Luke and Acts points to us that the word of God is far more than just the things that come out of the mouth of Jesus. It's more than just the red letters in your Bible. The word of God is the red and the black letters and everything in between that has been recorded. And the reason I want to point that out is because according to Luke, the word of God extends authoritatively beyond a perfect vessel like Jesus. It extends authoritatively even through imperfect vessels like Isaiah and his whole prophecy that he writes. It extends through Moses, who certainly is an imperfect vessel. The word of God extends into the New Testament into Peter and Paul and James and all of the writers of the New Testament. 
And the Word of God extends authoritatively through all of the pages of Scripture. And the reason that's important is because there are some who would form whole theologies trying to say that we're going to put the words of Jesus up and against the words of the rest of Scripture and call into question and even void some of the other things that Scripture says on the basis that Jesus doesn't explicitly mention those same things. Jesus' teaching has a different focus, and therefore we shouldn't focus on anything that he doesn't focus on. And while I understand where that sentiment comes from, it's wise for you to know that no one in Scripture, even Jesus himself, does not refer to other Scriptures as having less authority than his words. In fact, many of the times he starts his expositions, he says, you have heard it was written, or you have read, or you remember, implying that they should be familiar with the background in which he's talking about, because otherwise this new teaching is not going to make any sense. And the reason the new teaching doesn't make sense is because the new teaching is simply a continuation of the old. He's simply telling you the true interpretation of the things as they've been understood or should have been understood. You'll remember, as a, a few weeks ago, we read the prophecy out of Isaiah 61, and Jesus exposits that text saying that it is the word of God. He says Isaiah writes, sometimes when he quotes, and he'll quote Isaiah or Zechariah, He'll quote these prophets, and then he'll say the word of God, and then he'll quote from Isaiah. And so we're not to understand that Jesus' words are any more so the word of God than the words of any of the other writers of Scripture. And that's important for us to know because previously we've seen that the people said that his word possesses authority. And the word of God moving forward in the church is something that we need to take very seriously because the word of God is our source of authority. The Word of God is actually the only means by which we can call into question any other source of authority. Scripture is the highest source of truth and revelation. So it's important that we know what falls under the category of Scripture. Paul's writings and his teachings, all of his teachings, are just as authoritative as all of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the teachings of the author of Judges and Joshua are just as authoritative as the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's important because if we miss that, or if we say somehow Jesus' teachings void these other teachings, what we're saying is something about the Godhead, that God was unable to communicate perfectly his revelation through imperfect vessels. And while that might not seem very threatening on the front end, we believe that God made a perfect man through a sinful woman. And so if God can't overcome sinfulness in some lanes, but in others, we have to ask the question, does that actually hold up? But in Revelation, through the Word, we see that the words of the other writers are superintended by the Holy Spirit. They're breathed out the very words of God. And so we need to treat all of them with the same amount of authority. And that's important for us because even today, just as the Old Testament prophets spoke, and just as Jesus preached, and just as the uh, apostles in the New Testament write, we today who teach and preach the Word of God, if we get the text right and we are faithfully revealing to you the revelation, that word is just as binding on your heart as well. This is why we believe so much in preaching. It's not because we think preachers are particularly clever individuals, or we think that they have great illustrations, or we think that they're great communicators. We believe in preaching because Jesus and his church models for us preaching, and the church throughout 2,000 years of church history has also believed firmly that preaching is the common grace of God to the people of God for them to be convicted, for them to be moved, and for them to be changed as a result. And it's not because a particular preacher is good. The Church of God has outlasted thousands and hundreds of thousands of preachers. But the Church of God moves on the Word of God, and the preachers of God are only useful so long as they preach and teach the Word of God. 
Actually, the Old Testament prophets, many of them start off their writings by saying, this is the, the oracle of God or this is the word of God through such and such individual. And there are a great many numbers of authors to scripture, but the word of God is consistent throughout. And the word of God is authoritative throughout. And in this case, these people go to Jesus to hear the words of God, to hear his preaching. And they're pressing in on him and they're pressing in on him to such an extent that he actually has to get off of the shore and get onto the lake to get space from this crowd. So what he does is he goes and finds these empty boats, whether he's walking by and he sees them or he has intended to do so in God's providence. We see that he sees two boats by the lake, but the fishermen are not there because the fishermen are out washing their nets. So he gets into one of these boats, the boats which is Simon's, that same Simon who we met last week who Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And he gets into Simon's boat and he asks Simon to put out a little bit from the land, which means just give me a little bit of space from the crowd. And then once that happens, Jesus sits down as he does in the synagogue and he continues preaching and teaching as he was. And this is interesting because Jesus doesn't get annoyed by the crowd for pressing in. He actually continues to preach and teach them, even though they're kind of making it very difficult for him to do so. He also preaches and teaches without need uh, of a megaphone. He does so uh, with, vo with just his normal voice. He sits down as many rabbis would at that time, and he preaches to this crowd. And many commentators point out at this, at this moment, which I find very interesting, is, uh, you know, in Jesus' early life, you know, when he's a child growing up, we see that he spends his time with the scribes and the Pharisees and he is striking, striking them with a curiosity and with amazement. But his adult ministry is not really focused on the scribes and the Pharisees. He bumps into them from time to time. He still has run-ins with them. But his whole adult ministry is basically to the working class individual. His adult ministry is to the common man. He is not in a synagogue right now. He's not just with the devout Jews. He's basically just out in the open. Anybody can come and hear him preach at this moment. And this is really the bulk of his earthly ministry. It's to the people who are like you and I, really insignificant in many ways, but just willing and curious to listen and hear the words of God. And he does this and he preaches and teaches faithfully to these people, in this case from a boat. And you'll see that as the word of God goes forth, Jesus preaches and teaches and exposits scripture. And we're not told in this case what the text is, but it is interesting to note that even today as Christians, we can still hear the word of God. We can still see the word of God preserved in the pages of scripture. And the reason I take much time to press that into you is because as a Christian, just like these people press in curiously to hear God's word, you need to live and die by the word of God, which means when you get up, when you start your day, when you encounter the world around you, it's going to be making statements about who God is, what he came to do, who you are, what your purpose is in life. And scripture also has statements that it makes on all of those things. So as a Christian, you have to choose actively on a regular basis to feed on a diet that consists of the word of God. And that doesn't mean you're going to hear an audible voice from God. What that means is you need to read the words which he has faithfully preserved to us throughout thousands of years. God has chosen in his wisdom to preserve his words in this book. And if we value this source of revelation, we need to treat these scriptures seriously, which means to study them which means to meditate on them, which means to memorize them. God moves and speaks audibly into your heart through the Holy Spirit. He actually tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you'll remember in the resurrection, he goes to his disciples, he preaches audibly to them, the resurrected Christ. And when they reflect on what he says, 
They don't say, wow, we've heard the voice of God. What they say is, did not our hearts burn within us as he revealed to us the scriptures? That's what they say. On reflection, even in talking with the risen Christ, they say, you know what? He preached the scriptures and our hearts burned within us as we heard them. And that is exactly what happens when the word of God is exposited today. You don't hear audible voices from God. What you hear is the spirit moving in your heart and pressing you and convicting you and comforting you. And that is how the spirit of God still breathes and talks today. Jesus says in John 10 that my sheep hear my voice and they know my voice and they obey it. That is the flock of God. We are his sheep. We are his people. And so we hear his voice and his voice preserved here in the text of scripture. So as Christians, we need to very seriously treat the word of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God, if you obey his word, you love him. If you love God, you will love his words. Now, that doesn't mean we worship the word of God. We worship the God to whom the word points. But it would be a very strange thing for me to say something like, I love my wife, but I just don't like hearing her talk. If you love God, you will love his words. If you love God and you are truly in love with the creator of all the universe, you will dwell on every single word which he has revealed to us. You won't go outside of his scriptures to find revelation. His scriptures have revelation in them. And I've said before, there are a great many Christian authors who write amazing books and amazing commentaries but they are not the word of God. They are helpful and they point to truth, but we cannot levy their observations as if somehow they are more authoritative than scripture. And so we should be wise again to dwell in a great measure of time on the pages of scripture itself and spend our time there and spend our prayers there, spend our mornings and our evenings there, teach our children these things. That's what we are called to do as Christians. And this then points us to uh, the sign that Jesus does. So Jesus has now revealed his word to the people. We're not told what this sermon is, but he's going to now, in a secondary way, reveal himself to these disciples themselves, even before they're disciples. And he's going to do this through the sign that you're going to see in verse 4 and following. In verse 4, we see that he has finished speaking, and he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, that statement might, be, might not be all too surprising to us, right? Because if you grow up in church, you know this story. You know how this story kind of ends. And actually, we've read it together today. So Simon should be, you know, right on board, ready to go, right? But what verse 5 reveals to us is some context that verse 4 is lacking. And verse 5 says, when Simon answers, he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We took nothing. Simon, remember, is an expert fisherman. This is how he puts food on the table for him, his family, and as you see, he lives with his mother-in-law. So he puts food on the table for his family and his relatives by fishing. He is an expert fisherman. He does this day in and day out, and we've seen he's toiled hard the entire previous evening. And yet, Jesus tells Simon how to fish. And that's interesting. To put in context how absurd this would be if Jesus was just a normal person, right? Remember, Jesus is a carpenter, so he's not an expert fisherman. He's a working class man, but he's not an expert fisherman. He's a carpenter, a rabbi, but neither of those things qualifies him to tell an expert fisherman on his boat how to go about fishing. Again, to put this in context, if I was to, let's say, bump into Max at the end of a long five-hour day of his job, and he tells me, you know, it's been frustrating today, the installs have gone wrong, the wood flooring didn't stain right, we couldn't cut things correctly, machines weren't working, you know, it was just a rough day at work. And I go, well, you know, maybe you should have tried this. You know, given my pedigree, my background, my skill set, that would be a completely absurd thing for me to say. 
And if Jesus is just a carpenter or just a rabbi, this kind of statement is completely absurd. But he's more than a carpenter and he's more than a mere rabbi. And scripture teaches us this because when Jesus says these kinds of things, Simon questions his knowledge and his understanding, but he still faithfully obeys. He addresses him, you see there, as master, or he addresses him as chief. This is not Lord, which we will see later in the text. He addresses him as master. So he's respectfully addressing him. He's saying, just so you know, Jesus, we toiled all night long and took nothing. And this also, this statement also colors us in a large previous context of the the verses above. Because remember, Simon and his fellow fishermen serve Jesus after this long night of work. They come off of this long night of toiling, catching nothing. And instead of going home and going to bed and trying to call it another day, when Jesus asks them to help him in this sermon, they faithfully let him out, get him on the boat, and they serve Jesus. And that's an interesting thing to tell us about the character of these fishermen. Clearly, they are men who love this man. They serve him. And so they tell him, we toiled all night, we took home nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So they say, at your word, I will let down the neck. So we're told here that Simon is really the guy who runs this boat, right? This is a, jar, a big commercial fishing operation. So it's not just Simon. Simon has a crew that operates on this boat. And he says, at your word, I will tell my men, who are all, by the way, still with him, to let down the nets. And we will try to catch the fish if you say so, Jesus. And so they do. And they let down the nets. And you see in verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed for themselves a large number of fish. So large, in fact, that the nets are breaking and the boats begin to sink as even they call over their counterparts to help them catch this fish. Now, the text is telling us something significant about this miracle. And I want to underscore this for you because there are many today who look back on the miraculous works of Jesus and they try to explain away or logic away many of the phenomena that we see in the text. And the text doesn't allow that kind of understanding to take place. This is not Jesus helping them catch larger than average fish, which could be explained with, you know, standard deviation from the norm. This is a catch of fish unlike any other catch of fish that they've ever caught in their entire lives. We know this because their boats, which are designed for holding fish, even good catches, go under. If their boats go under with just a larger than average catch of fish, they are terrible fishermen with terrible equipment. Their nets are ripping, which tells us that these fish are so heavy, this catch is so great, that their nets are exceeded in maximum capacity by which they could hold. If you are a person who drives a truck and you haul things from one place to another, if your larger than average load put your truck into the ground, popped all its tires and it wasn't able to carry it, you would have a a thing that was insufficient for the job. And so their nets and their boats are designed to take into account these random deviations from the norm. And so when Jesus tells them to put in their nets, We can't say that Jesus got lucky or he somehow knew a larger than average catch was in the water. We are to expect by all of the accounts, by the expert fishermen's testimony that they toiled all night, by the fact that it's now daytime and the fish are not as active in the day, by the fact that the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking, this is something that blows out of the water explanation within, you know, this is just a normal larger than average catch of fish. These people are blown away by what they see. Peter in particular is blown away by this catch of fish. Jesus is more than a carpenter. He's more than a charlatan who can sneak away by, you know, deceiving these people and catching a a larger than average grouping of fish. So the question here is, what does this sign point to? 
what is the purpose of this sign? If we're going to say that it's a sign, and I think the text, the evidence uh, in the text points us to that, what does this sign point us to? What does it reveal to us as readers? I think the, the revelation is most accurately dealt with by Peter himself. So if you look with me in the text, we're going to look at then the third heading right now, which is the holy God. Because when Simon Peter responds, he does not respond in any other way other than to fall before Jesus. He says in verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, that is this catch of fish that they have just gotten a hold of, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he, and this tells us, verse 9 tells us why he does this. It says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. They're not, you know, mildly impressed. They are blown out of the water. Peter's blown out of the water so much that he falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, if you take that phrase, O Lord, at face value, you might be tempted to say that, you know, Peter fully understands who Jesus is at this moment in time and therefore he's making at this moment a profession of faith. But the text doesn't really allow us to do that because Lord in this text is really used in what's called the indicative or the imperative. So what, what it tells us is not that he's addressing him as Lord or Master, it's telling us he's addressing him respectfully as like Sir. So then the question is, why does he fall on his knees before Jesus if he's just going to address him as Sir? Well, the reason is because at this moment, this sign has pointed to Jesus being at least, at the very minimum, a messenger of God. Simon Peter is not necessarily saying that Jesus is at this point the Christ. That's not necessarily true of this text. But what he is certainly saying is that God is working in and through this man. And this prophet is with me, and I am a very unholy man. And this text is pointing us to the fact that Simon Peter, even if he's not saying that Jesus is yet the Christ or the Messiah, he's acknowledging that God works in and through this man. And if God works in and through this man, and this man is the representative or the ambassador of God, then me, an unholy person, I shouldn't be near the ambassador of God. This same response here, for depart from me, for I am a sinful man, is seen in several other places in Scripture as well. You'll see sometimes the angel of the Lord shows up to some people, and they fall on their face and they beg him to leave, and sometimes they reflect on their mortality at that moment. You can think about Ezekiel and his throne room scene in Ezekiel chapter 1. But I think the text in Scripture that points us most to the wording and the phrasing of this text would be Isaiah 6. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah 6, I want to look at that other account of the holiness of God. Because remember, these texts are revealing to us the holy God. That's what this sign points to. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and his house was filled with smoke. And in verse 5, we see Isaiah's response to this perception of the holy God, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, 
and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see in that text in Isaiah the same kind of response that you see from Peter when he's interacting with Jesus. Remember, Peter says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, by the way, is a prophet of God. Isaiah, at this moment in time, lives with the people of Israel. And he identifies the chosen nation of God and himself a chosen vessel within that nation of God as unclean, unclean, all the way around. And Peter, a devout Jew, says when he interacts with the, the, the ambassador of the Lord, he says, depart from me for I am a wicked man. And what's interesting about these things is I think we often talk about this, how our heart naturally gravitates towards religion. But when religion is encountered with the holy God and it sees the holy God for what it is, religion is completely undone. Isaiah in this text does not say he sees the holy God and he says, great, I've kept all of the laws that you gave me you know, a long time ago, so I can hang out here. What he says is he is completely undone by seeing the holy God. He's not going to take his religious works and put them up to the holy God and say that somehow that qualifies him for this moment in time. Isaiah understands that there is actually nothing that he could do to save himself at this moment. He says, I am undone. And Peter, in, in this text in Luke, says that he is a man of unclean lips, so, or he says he is a, a sinful man, so sinful in fact, that he wants Jesus to depart from him. And that's interesting because the very thing he needs from a holy God is for the holy God to be near him, but he's so convicted by his own sinfulness that he wants God away. And so I want to turn back to Luke, but keep your finger in Isaiah because we're going to go back there to finish off another reference. I want to reflect on that for a second because Peter asked Jesus to depart from him. And we've seen other characters in this text who ask Jesus to depart from them. You'll remember the demon from a couple of weeks ago who encounters Jesus in the synagogue and says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? telling him to remember to get away from me. You'll remember that there are a great number of demons who we have yet to meet in the Gospel of Luke who will have the same kind of response, depart from me, because they're aware of their own uncleanness, and they're aware that they're in the presence of a holy God. And here, Peter, aware of his uncleanness, says the same kind of thing, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, Peter does not here have in mind one particular sin that he's confessing. He's not really convicted about, you know, for I am someone who commits sins. He actually chooses as his chief identity or his chief description of himself as a sinful man. He's saying, in effect, my all-encompassing reality at this moment in the presence of the ambassador of God is that I am sinful through and through. If you were to summarize Peter's life in this one moment, he, t- he takes it all, not he's a fisherman, not he's a father, Now he's a husband. He says, I am a sinner. Primary identity. And it's interesting because he doesn't see that as a blessing or as a benefit. And the world, in its deception today, has many of us trying to take our sins, our particular sins, and make them our chief identifying factors. We can summarize our life and say that the world has us trying to celebrate a great many number of sins. And the world actually says, you know, you should embrace that sin as your identity, as your chief identity, and also celebrate it. Well, Peter embraces the fact that he is a sinner as his chief identity, but he doesn't seem to be taking much pleasure in that respect. He actually takes his sin, and he says that he needs to be away from the very presence of Jesus at this moment. 
he's completely broken. And you need to catch the weight of that because the, the expectation of Peter is that a holy God would punish a sinful person. And the ambassador of a holy God does the bidding of a holy God. And so therefore, if Jesus is the ambassador of God and he's encountering a sinful person, his job rightly and justly would be to punish Peter. That's a fitting thing. And Peter actually expects that and doesn't seem to think it's an unjust thing to have happen. That's why he wants Jesus gone, because he thinks if he's in his presence for any longer, he is dead. So he asks and pleads with him just to leave. And that is going to be so interesting because the response of Jesus tells us something different that God has in store by his words. So James and John, all of these people are seeing this scene, and Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. The first thing Jesus says to Simon is don't be afraid. That's interesting because remember, Simon's default response is fear. And it's good for Simon to respond in fear. The last thing that we need is for our conscience to be so seared by our sin that we are no longer sensitive to our need as sinners. The last thing we need as sinful people is to be unaware of our sin. And as a culture, we are very quickly tempted to skip the sin part and skip the justice and the wrath part and go straight to the grace part. And the grace part is sweet and we all wanna make a beeline there and I get that. But we cannot get to the grace and cheapen it by skipping over the justice. And Peter doesn't atone for his own sins. He doesn't make excuses for his sinfulness. He actually just kind of leaves himself in the hand of God. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And you notice Jesus interjects at this point and says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Now, he doesn't at this moment go on to explain why not, which is interesting because he could. He could, he could tell him his whole plan at this point, but he doesn't yet. He just says, don't be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And in so, he, he calls Peter to be his disciple. He actually calls Peter, James, and John at this moment, and some accounts would also say Andrew is looped in with this group. And he calls them all to follow him, to in, embrace him in the mission of catching men, as he, as he summarizes it. He says, don't be afraid. But he doesn't explain why. And he doesn't say how he's supposed to, you know, atone for all these things and make reconciliation. And actually remember, as I said at the beginning of this account, Luke's okay with that tension. Remember, as readers, he's not going to come out and explicitly tell us the full plan. He's just building evidence, step by step, little by little, over the course of this whole book. And by the end of the book, after the resurrection, he's going to start resolving some of these tensions for us. Then you're going to see Peter get it, finally. And then you're going to see some of the other disciples get it, finally. And you're going to see some of the disciples who see him, don't like him, and reject it, finally. But all of them at this point are perplexed, maybe interested, and Jesus nonetheless has invited them into relationship with him and into mission with him. Notice he says, come and join me, for now you will be catching men. And remember, at the start of this account, what Jesus was doing. He's in a boat, in a fishing boat, preaching the word of God, catching men. That's what Jesus was just doing earlier. He's casting his net of the gospel out over the crowd from the boat, and the disciples are unaware that that's happening. They're, they get it, you know, he's teaching and preaching. But now he invites them into that same kind of mission. But how is that possible given Peter's previous statement that he is a sinner? How is it possible that God invites Peter into mission with him, even though Peter has previously stated his qualifications as sinful, full stop, no further explanation? And to understand that, 
we need to go back to Isaiah's text and understand that there is no ability to be in mission with God without being first and foremost justified by God. Without justification, there is no ongoing relationship with God. Isaiah understands this, and his account kind of spells out some of those missing details for us in the Luke account. Because remember, Luke is presenting the evidence as seen. Isaiah kind of tells us in the Holy of Holies what's happening at this moment, because he's in the very uh, throne room of God in this scene. Remember, I'm just going to read again from verse 5. It says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. That's what Isaiah has just finished saying. And the response is not death. It's not just punishment. The response in verse verse 6 is interesting. You'll see one of these creatures, a seraphim, previously worshiping God, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. And he had taken this coal with tongs from the altar. And what he does with the coal is fascinating. And he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. That's an interesting scene. And there's a lot of questions we can ask from this text. And I want to ask just a few of them. The first one is, how is it possible that a coal atones for the sins of Isaiah? Or for the yeah, for the sins of Isaiah? How is it possible that a coal from the altar, an inanimate object, be it on fire, atones for his sins? We could ask a lot of questions, right? We could ask, how does the coal not burn him? Why does he choose to touch his lips? Why does he have to take it with a tongue? Why is it the seraphim delivering it? We could ask all those questions, and I think we should. But for this moment, for with a real focus, I want to ask the question: how does the coal take away Isaiah's sins. And to understand that, I just want to make brief reference to Hebrews. And you don't need to turn there because I'm not going to turn there and read from it. But in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews explains to us the difference between the heavenly throne room and the earthly temple. The author of Hebrews actually tells us that the earthly temple is beautiful and it's glorious in all its wonder, but it's simply a shadow of the heavenly realities. All of the things made in the earthly temple, they're a shadow of the things in heaven. And the things in heaven is what Isaiah sees. Isaiah is in the temple of God, seeing his glory on all display. And so when Isaiah sees the altar, Isaiah sees that heavenly altar. Not the earthly altar with its coals. He sees the heavenly altar with its coals. And that's an interesting thing to note because the author of Hebrews in that same text goes on to tell us that while the earthly things can be purified in part with the blood of animals, the heavenly things, the more pure things, the more holy things, need a different kind of sacrifice. They need a different caliber of holy for them to be cleaned. And that when sin entered the world, sin didn't somehow just fracture the earthly reality. It also, in many ways, fractured the heavenly reality. And that fracture isn't repaired until you have a cleansing offering that is offered. And that offering is offered on the altar. That offering is given as a burnt offering on the altar. And if you were to study the book of Leviticus and you look through all the Old Testament codes, you'll see there's a few offerings that are given. There's an incense offering, uh, an offering that uh, atones for sins. And then you see also a peace offering. All of these things are offered on the altar. Some of them are burnt offerings. Some of them are bulls. Some of them are goats. Some of them are the scapegoats themselves, which are used as a direct uh, point to for all of the sins of the people of Israel on the day of atonement. But they're all offered on the altar, which means these coals get the blood of these animals that are burnt up, dripping on them. And the, and the altar then acts as a picture for us of what the altar does. The altar is the means by which 
God purifies sinners. On, in the earthly realities, the altar purifies the people of Israel for some time. And then they have to offer it again and again and again and again and again. But the heavenly realities, as the author of Hebrews in that same chapter 9 tells us, the heavenly realities are only purified one time by means of a perfect sacrifice. That perfect sacrifice is the perfect Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, who for once offered or entered into the holy place, offering himself for all time. That's what Jesus does. And that's important because, remember, Isaiah is purified by a coal from this holy altar, from this heavenly altar, which means he's purified by the sacrifice of Jesus on that altar. Isaiah is purified in the same way that every other saint in all of church history has ever been purified. It's not that Isaiah gets saved in this case by some special means and that other people are saved in their own ways. Everyone saved by the same mechanism. The coal touches Isaiah's lips and that purifies his unclean lips for a life on mission to go and preach. Remember, he's a prophet. His whole ministry is teaching. So if his lips are unclean, that's a problem because that's his, that's his work to God. And he's purified through this coal and it says, behold, it has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And not only is your guilt removed, that's a picture of the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat sent into the wilderness. Not only is your guilt removed, but also all the sins that you've previously committed, the weight of that guilt is atoned for. The payment of sin is more than just the forgetting of sin or the casting away of sin. If God just did that, that would be an unjust thing for him to do. But he also pays the price of the sin. Sin is atoned for. Sin is perfectly met. The justice penalty for sin is perfectly met. It's paid by Jesus on this altar. That's where Jesus is offered. And on the cross, Jesus, yes, is offered on a physical cross. But what's happening in the heavenly realities at that moment is an all-time offering, once for all, a perfect sacrifice given. And when the heavenly things are purified, the earthly things are purified, and through this means, all things are cleansed. That's the offering. And notice the response of Isaiah, and then we're going to take a look back at Luke and see the response of Peter and the other apostles to Jesus' absolution of them. In verse 8 of Isaiah, he hears this voice, he gets this purification, and he says, and the Lord says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah now, purified, cleansed, ready to go, says, send, here I am, send me. And then God commissions him out basically for the entire rest of the book to go and be his voice to the people. That's how Isaiah responds. He's purified, he gets his sins taken away, and he says, here I am, send me. And let's turn back to Luke and look at the response of Peter which, by the way, will mirror for us a response we saw last week, which is Simon's mother-in-law getting up and serving Christ. The response of these people is consistent. Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, what do they do? They don't take this catch of fish, which they just made a, a massive lottery win catch. They don't take that and go sell it. They don't try to strike a deal with Jesus and say, okay, you know, if you show up a handful of times every couple of years, we'll cut you some of the profits. We can, you can take 50, 60%, and we'll keep taking these catches in. They don't, they're not focused on the catch. They're focused on Jesus. And they, they leave their boats behind. They leave those nets behind. They leave all the fish behind. And they left everything and followed him. The sign, remember, points to something. And I said that that sign points to the holy God. And I think this is confirmation that it points to that. Peter's response says it but also the response of all the disciples say that too. 
the sign points to not the fact that there is a lot of fish, not the fact that God can provide provision. Certainly it testifies to those things, but it points to a God who's holy and that he has messengers who go about and do his bidding. And this points ultimately not to the blessing that was provided, but to the God who provides the blessing. And all blessings are the same way. All signs, all miracles, all provisions of God are the same. You remember that there are some people in this world who God says their, their riches are so much that they actually can't see beyond the riches. They can't, they can't see through all the blessing, all the providence, all the gifts that they've been given. Israel actually gets to this point at some point in their ministry. They get so rich, they get so powerful, they get so comfortable in their provision that they forget the God who provides all these things. And they start focusing on the blessings and the expansion of their territories. That's what they begin to focus on. And they start settling and forgetting the God to whom all of these realities point. And here the disciples rightly see everything. And they leave all of the blessings and they go to follow the God who gives them the blessings. And they're called then on mission and we'll see in the rest of the book of Luke how this mission begins to unfold. Remember, Jesus' response to them is a gracious response. He heals them. He reveals his presence to them. They don't fully understand what they're getting into yet. But they're being called to follow. They're being called to follow. And their response tells us something about all Christian conversions, which is all Christians are called to follow. Now, that call to follow doesn't look the same all the time. In fact, in other accounts in Luke, you'll see that people are saved. They testify in faith. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he tells them to go back into their place of employment and to stay right there, and to work and to labor for the glory of God. Some are called, as these apostles are, to follow after him and ultimately to be his voice when he goes up to heaven, to be the voice that begins the movement of the early church. That's what they're called to do. But everyone is called, and everyone is called to follow, and everyone is called to serve in some way, shape, or form. Some are called to be homemakers and to raise up the next generation of faithful Christian children. Some people are called to uh, cultivate a, a workplace and to create a, a work environment that, that brings about the goodness and the common grace of God to the world, whether that be through humanitarian efforts and, and the like. Some people are called to uh, work at their nine to five to put food on the table for their family so that their family doesn't have to worry about those things so their family can go to church and their kids can be protected and safe. And some people are called to that for the glory of God and to work and to cultivate. Some people are called on mission to go evangelize the nations. Some people are called to go and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to learn a foreign language, to use their skill set and employment to go somewhere where the gospel has not yet been proclaimed, and to go and do that. Some people are called to defend the world of theology from those who seek to impose on it, who are called to, to write and to object to worldviews that stand against the Christian worldview and to object to the false teachings and the false gospel. You'll see Paul wears a lot of these hats. Apollos wears some of these hats, Timothy wears some of these hats, but they're all called and they all know that they're called. And the question just becomes, in what way are they called to serve? And I think it's wise for us all to ask that same kind of question. Because for Isaiah, it's not, okay, how then, should I serve God? Should I not serve God? Do I kind of keep going on with my life? He's so radically changed by this encounter that the question isn't, should I? The question is, okay, how should I go? How should I go? I think it's fitting for all Christians to ask that same question. Because when the body works appropriately, when the body functions appropriately, all the members of the body are on mission. Again, in different capacities. We're not all created with the same giftings and skill sets, but we're all called to serve. We're all called to go forth and to cultivate and to bring out the kingdom of heaven, to bring forth the gospel. And I think there's one text I want to close with to, to kind of paint to that reality of how the kingdom goes forth through a great many number of people. And it's in John chapter 4. 
John chapter 4 and verse 36. Jesus is telling them about uh, his mission on earth, the, the apostles. This is right after the woman of the well encounter. He says in uh, verse 34, to, to, to uh, give you some context for this, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what Jesus' mission on earth is. And then in verse 36, he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So he's identifying one person who reaps. And then he says, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. So now there's another party at play in bringing someone into the kingdom. The sower and a reaper, they're both rejoicing together. In verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what he's saying is this is a, this is a corporate effort. This is not a one person who's supposed to do all of these things. Some people sow, some people reap, some people go forth and plant. Paul writes in one of his letters to the, to the Corinthians and he says, you know, I, Paul, I planted. Apollos, who's their local preacher, waters. But ultimately it's Christ who gives the growth. The kingdom of heaven goes forth, but it doesn't go forth by the will and the skills of any one person, lest we have room to boast. It goes forth by the collective effort of the people of God, each playing their role. Not everyone is called to plant. If it were so, who's going to water? Not everyone is called to go overseas. If so, who's going to defend the mission and the theology here? Not everyone is called to defend here because we need to go overseas and get the gospel out. Not everyone is called to be a homemaker because we need people earning income. Not everyone is called to earn income because we need people to stay home and to raise children because otherwise we won't have a generation to pass on the things of God to. Not all are called in the same way, but all are called. So then the question that I want you to reflect on this week is this question. How have you been called? In what way can you serve and cultivate the kingdom of God for his glory? Remember, the, the Lord's Prayer is uh, for the kingdom of God to come forth, forth on earth as it already is present in heaven. And if we believe that mission, we need to engage in the work of bringing forth the kingdom, each with his own gifting, each with his own skill, to the one who has much, much will be required, but to all something in some measure and in some way will be required. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to, to praise you and for the ability to study your word. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a kind and gracious God who comes to sinful people and who delivers to us a great pearl. Lord, I pray that we would with much reverence and with much awe pay attention to the pearl that we've been given. The great gift of the gospel, which we should not soon depart from, Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God who gives good gifts to your people. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray for sustenance for the weak. We pray that uh, we would be able to forgive those who sin against us. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to forgive us of our sins, even though we are completely deserving of the judgment. Lord, you are a good God and your grace is amazing. Lord, we pray that as we continue in worship tonight, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable before you, Lord. We pray that you would be our rock and our redeemer. Amen.